Welcome to They Live By Film, a platform dedicated to bringing you film discussion and interviews from around the world. I'm Adam Lundy, joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello, gentlemen. How's things? Things are well. How are things with you? Oh, I'm amazing as always. Living the dream, as I like to say. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Are we feeling a little bit smarter and a little bit better than other people this week? Always. We'll get there. (laughs) That's my natural state. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so, i learned a couple things this week which we're going to get into shortly but I, I realized that i've been pronouncing godard wrong my whole life oh yeah, yeah that's the thing with the french if it ends in two consonants you only pronounce the last consonant yeah if they want you to say the last consonant they'll put an e afterwards crazy french yeah there you go uh, before we get into what we're going to do today and any other sort of little bits and pieces, I just want to give a shout out to our listeners, just to let them know that we have actually launched our YouTube uh, channel. I think Zach brought it up in his special presentation, if you managed to catch that a couple of episodes ago. And I will put the link in the description. So if you are a YouTube person, uh, please come subscribe uh, to the channel. We have, as of recording, there's one video, but by the time this episode goes out, uh, there may even be another video on there as well. It's going to be all types of different content. Um, I have a tier list, French New Wave tier list on the channel at the moment. Uh, I have a couple of other uh, tier lists planned out, as well as some other different types of videos. I know that Chris and Zach have their own plans as well for content they might want to put on there at some point. So um, if you are a YouTube person, uh, please go to subscribe to the channel, give a like, leave a comment, all that usual stuff. And we're going to be building that up over, over the year anyway, too. Uh, hopefully, again, just try and engage you with you a little bit more and just give you some completely different type of content that you would have never, we can never do in a in an audio format like a podcast. Yeah, the first one is good too. I was kind of mad at you. You really went <laughs> and uh, made like an impressive first video. <laughs> yeah, try and follow that up now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my next one, my next one's a bit a bit more fun. Not everything on there is going to be super sort of highbrow or kind of niche like French New Wave can kind of be. My next one's maybe going to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a bit humorous, so uh, I won't give any spoilers. Uh, you'll have to go and check out the channel to see if it's uploaded by the time you're, you're hearing this. I will go ahead and spoil mine. I'm going to do about a 12-hour retrospective on uh, the Fast and Furious franchise. <laughs> I don't know if you're joking. That's just bad. Let the say. Um, before we jump into our films this week, anyone want to shout out something to scene or any pickups they've gotten or anything like that? Yeah, I've got a few things to talk about, Zach. I don't know if you want to go first. No, no, you go ahead. I'm pulling up my letterbox because I'm 100% prepared. <laughs> well, um, okay, so there's there's two main things. First of all, yeah, we, we've talked before about the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series. Um, but have any of y'all seen the new Battles Without Honor and Humanity? No, no I've only seen the first one of that series. I haven't seen any of the others. Same. Um, it's really good. So, so basically, what they did was um, the the first five. Oh, I'm gonna cough and put myself on mute. One second. All right, the first five are um, kind of following the same family. And kind of following this, specifically an actor named Bunta Sugawara, as he kind of goes from, you know, relative poverty and obscurity after the war up into becoming more powerful in the family. 
Um, the, but the new battles, they do something interesting, which is there's three of them. And each one of them, they kind of take the story in a different direction. So the sixth one, I guess, in the series, you know, is sort of tied into that initial franchise. The seventh one, they take it in a new direction and just make it almost like a new Hollywood type. Like there's car chases and, and like long gun fights, and it's just a little bit darker. Um, and then by the time they get to the eighth one, is that right? Yes, the eighth one. Uh, it's very much just like a dark, pessimistic, like grimy view of crime, how it like doesn't pay and no one's safe and it's hard. And anyways, I think they, they took some creative choices, but but I really like it. Um, and then the only other thing I'll talk about is um, just quickly is watching uh, all the Kislovsky films. I, I've been talking about this for a while because I took like a month break, <laughs> but back at it again. Um, just watch a whole bunch of his shorts and documentaries uh, and about to get to his second film, Camera Buff, coming up. But, um, you know, I feel like, Zach, you've talked about this before, how there's certain directors that are just sort of pretentious in your mind. Like you haven't seen their stuff, but they're kind of built, built up to be pretentious. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like Kislovsky might be one of those that people put in that category of like, um, even if they if they haven't seen the Decalogue or if they haven't seen some of his stuff or even if they have, just he feels like one of these kind of film school favorites. But um, his early stuff is, is awesome. Like he just basically there, he'll just take a camera and film like one person and just let him tell a story about being in you know under socialism and how how broken it is. And it's just I don't know. He just does it in like a bunch of different professions. So he's sort of over the course of. I think I've seen 23 shorts at this point and, and docs and you just get to see the country from like so many different angles and perspectives. It's, I don't know. I like it a lot. So happy to be doing that. What about y'all? Um, well, I have, uh, recently, uh, speaking of YouTube, there's a guy I've watched since I was in college, um, named horrible reviews. He's Swedish, I think, but he's always done like most disturbing content things. So recently, I guess it was like a year ago and I missed it. He had done like a three and a half hour video on the most disturbing films and kind of a beginner's guide sort of thing. So it kind of got me in the mood to watch that again because something's wrong with me. And since we're going to be talking about French films today, I will bring up uh, two, both of which I've rewatched, but they are just really great. Uh, the first one was uh, Martyrs. I haven't seen that since I was in college. Uh, okay. Fantastic film. Um, I forgot actually how good the, uh, the movie was. Uh, and I remembered it was disturbing and it hit hard, but I didn't remember that it's just really well shot. And it actually does, unlike some French stuff I've watched where the philosophical part actually feels vital to the film itself and not just some type of window dressing. Um, so that was pretty cool. I really liked it. And then I rewatched um, Revenge, which was a 2017 film. Uh, it was actually it's actually a rape revenge film, but written and directed by a woman so it actually gives like this really cool um different perspective of the genre it's incredibly colorful incredibly stylish everything's it's hard to call it over the top but it's fantastical um you know like she is pushed off a very long cliff and lands on a tree branch and gets penetrated from back to stomach and um you know she lives through this and ends up getting revenge because that's the whole point of the film 
Um, I don't think that's a spoiler for a rape revenge film, but it's uh, really well done in a sense that I don't know if there's another one in that subgenre like it. So it's what I always recommend to people, especially ones who are kind of uncomfortable about that subgenre, but still kind of want to get into it. Um, it's done very tastefully. It's done very fantastically. And I think it's a lot easier to get into than something like Irreversible, which I may be seeing in theaters in a couple weeks. We'll see. That's potentially going to happen. So. Yay me, I get to go be depressed because of no way. But uh, yeah, I think that covers most of what I've been watching. No, you go ahead. I'm going to get into stuff I watched. So if you have a question for Zach, you fire away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask, what was the name of the first one you said? The first French extremity film? Martyrs. Yeah, Martyrs. I remember I saw that when it first came out. Man, that film is... You're, you're right, it is very good. It's... Uh... It's hard to get that one out of your head. And, you know, that director, it really hasn't done much since. He did a movie a few years ago uh, called Ghostland, I think, in the UK. But it was an incident in a Ghostland here. Has a lot of the similar, like, thematic elements to it. But that one really got overshadowed because he asked an actress who was uncomfortable to do her own stunts. And uh, she ended up, that was going through, like, a glass window or something. And she ended up cutting and disfiguring her face real bad. So that ended up (laughs) overshadowing the whole thing. Um, because that's a big part of the film too is like the cover of the film even has it look like her face is glass and stuff like that i'm like this is in poor taste because that poor girl is disfigured now but uh oh. honestly it wasn't a bad movie but yeah he never really did recapture mortars but adam what have you watched maybe something happier um yeah i'll give a shout out to a couple of things something i watched something i've picked up and then just something that's come out since we last recorded that i just want to get your quick thoughts on so um regarding something i watched i was in dublin last weekend for a concert and i went to the irish film institute because they were having a mystery matinee so they were showing a mystery film no idea what it was they don't even show like a like a, i don't know if you guys have age creditation cards come up before your film starts to say what sort of age it's been sort of Set I think it's him, you know, when you walk in. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they do that in Ireland anyway. The, the Irish Film Board put up a thing to say this has been rated whatever for whatever reason. Then the film, and it shows the title of the film. They didn't even have that. It just the film starts. So I had no idea what it was. I guess by the title, by the production cards, it was new. And I could tell some people were kind of going, oh, ah, oh, because they kind of recognized it. All I could see was this tennis ball start rolling around the house. And this little squeaky voice started talking. I was like, oh, what the frick is this? And then next thing, the tennis ball opens up and a little shell with shoes on pops out. So it was Marcel the shell with shoes on. Um, I instantly recognized that from the poster. Um, obviously, I hadn't seen it. Chris, you had put it in your top five, if I remember, when we did that discussion at the end of last year. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, of the seven that I'd seen. But yes, it was a good movie. <laughs> well, honestly, it's it, it's it's it, it probably might push its way into my top five. It was an amazing little film. Yeah. It was so sweet. So good-natured, um, really well put together. The voice acting was was really great. It, yeah. The whole theater, and this was so good about watching something in like a proper film institute because I usually hate going to the theater because it's full of people on their phones and talking. There's just no respect for the theater experience anymore from normal people. Whereas everybody who goes to the Arch Film Institute are there because they love movies. Nobody mm. talked. Nobody's phone went off. There wasn't any lights going around. It was just... 40 people in a room shut the hell up and watched the movie uh, it was a sold out picture it was a great experience 
Um, there was people crying over a movie about a shell. I think that's just why I can sum this movie up about. It's a great movie, really funny, really sweet, really touching, but it's literally about a, a tiny talking shell. Um, and Isabella Rossellini plays the shell's grandmother, which I thought was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a really great film. Um, in terms of pickups, I have picked up the next two Radiance films uh, releases that are coming out uh, next week, Miami Blues and A Woman Kills. Uh, I have also picked up the first Mawu films release. Um, and the reason why I jumped to pick that one up is because the third thing I want to talk about, the extended sight and sound uh, results came out. The full 250, well, I think it's like 268 in total because there was loads of films that like tied. Um, so it's 250 plus and uh, that film that's from Mau, the 20 years later, I can't remember uh-huh. the first part of the title, uh, that's included in in that sight and sound poll. So I said, okay, well, I better jump on this release while I can because uh, I know it's limited edition. So jumped on it. So I've ordered that. Um, any thoughts on the extended sight and sound? I don't know if you guys had a chance to kind of properly peruse through it. I know Zach would have instantly been more happy with the extended results oh, uh, considering like <laughs> if you take 101 to 200 it is infinitely better than one through 100 <laughs> i don't know that 101 to 200 features that fucking movie about the textile district in china so i told you guys i won't be happy if that shows up <laughs> <laughs> oh isn't that although, like a 10-hour documentary <laughs> yeah yeah although to be fair i talked to someone in the discord who said they've seen it and they said it's actually really interesting so um, I don't know. Maybe it is good. There's a. I noticed that there's a there's a large influx in documentaries in the list this year. So I think documentary filmmaking is just getting its due as a as as a format. So um, I, maybe it's maybe it's not so surprising that it's in there, considering there's a lot more documentaries in it this time than there was ten years ago. That makes me happy. There's some some of the best storytelling in history is done through docs. Um, that. That 20 years later, I mean, it sounds like you have it, so I don't need to hype it up. I know you're going to watch it anyways. It's great, though. Like, I, it's, you know, it's one of those where it starts off and you're kind of like, what's going on? Like, not not in a confusing way, but just kind of in a, a not super interesting way. <laughs> and then <laughs> um, it, it, you know, you realize then it's like a making of a documentary that was made 20 years ago and the story of it. And you finally get to kind of see what was supposed to come out if it wasn't for this totalitarian rule this is not spoilers at all this is just like the first you know few minutes um and so what you're watching is the recreation of a lot of this stuff and stories and and it just it winds up focusing in on one of the characters and it's just it's done in a way that's very masterful and and um you know you you think about what this director could have done had he allowed this to come out you know at that time and then um had a career so I, I mean, he's a well-known film director anyways, but maybe not on the same level as some of the other kind of international film directors. But this one, you know, certainly holds its own. So I can't wait to yeah, hear what you think about yeah, it. Yeah, when I read the plot, it sounded like something like Kurostami might do. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, that's what got me excited about it. So I, I've, I literally only disordered it. So I probably won't cool. get it till during the week or maybe early next week. But um, yeah, I'm going to be, my, my project this year is, again, to try and sort of make my way through that that 268, whatever it is, uh, to fill in the gaps. I think I'm now on, I went from being like 90% done uh, to being now down to like 68% of the total for the sight and sound. So I'm going to try and bump that number up as much as I can this year. Um, there's a lot of stuff that seems hard to get your hands on. Like there's one film on there that like, 
I have to like find a dodgy version on YouTube. Um, I like, and this is this is kind of this is kind of my problem with the sight and sound poll. And I don't want to dwell too long on this because I know we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. But there's a lot of films on here that I'm wondering how these critics have even seen them. Yeah. Enough and like, you know, when I if I'm putting together a list of ten films that I think is the ten greatest films, I I would have wanted to have seen that film I'm voting for at least more than once. So fair enough if they saw it initially at release, but like there's no versions of these films online or on disc. Like, are they voting for this purely on seeing it once? Or yeah, I just I that's that's my only kind of problem I have with the sight and sound critics polls is that a lot of the time I feel like they're voting for stuff purely based on like the idea of it rather than is it sit, like, have they rewatched this? Have they seen it multiple times? You know, it's, I know there's no criteria for the poll, but obviously enough people are voting for this kind of stuff. You know, this really impossible to see films for them to make it up so high in, in the rankings. So that, that's, that's something I, I've kind of had a problem with, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I would hate to think that there is like enough people who sit there and say, I kind of want to look more important. So I'm going to put in a movie that no one's heard of, but obviously, you know, enough people would vote on because like you said, maybe they saw it at a critic screening 30 years ago and yeah, that's what that was, nobody bought it. So now it's just got some film reel, some sitting in some salt mine somewhere. <laughs> that's exactly no. how I feel. Yeah. It's, it's really bizarre, but yeah, it is what it is. I suppose. We were just, we were just talking of, well, I guess this is a, a tiny spoiler, but I, I don't mind because hopefully it gets people excited. I just sat down with the the guys that own Arbelos um, to do an interview, and they're both film school, uh, you know, graduates. And, and you know, I think a lot of people in the industry that end up as critics actually went to film school. And I, I have to imagine that there's some exposure to, that you get there that you may not have just in the general public, right? Like there, there has to be some kind of archival prints of some of these things going around that can be done from educational purposes. Um, I, I would hope, uh, you know, maybe it's something like that, but I, I totally agree with y'all. What's the point of having something at number 17 as the greatest film of all time, if nobody can see it, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, the only thing I can think of is, you know, it gives enough recognition and maybe in a way it gives a demand for, people like Arbellos or people from whatever boutique label to sit there and say, okay, maybe we should go look for that. Um, I could kind of see that potentially, but is that, you know, yeah. I don't know how likely that actually is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, exactly. it's a tricky, it's a tricky one. Uh, but Hey, ho, let's, let's, let's move on. So today's feature presentation uh, is a triple feature presentation as listeners know if you listen to the end of our last episode um, and you can tell from this title of the episode we are going to be talking about some Godard films uh, so th- th- we're actually going to talk about three films this week which we normally only talk about two but again if you heard the end of the last episode we talked we couldn't really decide whether to just stick with two or go with three because there was three I wanted to do so we just went with that so the first one we're going to talk about is from 1962. So we're pretty much going to be talking about these in release order. Um, I believe this was Goddard's fourth film. Um, and bear in mind, he'd only released his first film in 1960. So he was working very hard and very quickly in these early years. And 
The first one is Vive Sa Vie, um, or My Life to Live, to give it the English title. If you're unfamiliar, just give you the brief synopsis from Letterboxd. Uh, 12 episodic tales in the life of a Parisian woman and her slow descent into prostitution. It's a very simple, straightforward film that really does sum it up. It's just 12 short vignettes uh, about the life of this woman who is played by Anna Karina. Um, so I mentioned last when we spoke last that this was one of, if not my favorite Godard film. So my thoughts are pretty obvious in terms of how I liked it. Uh, I know that Chris likes Godard generally, so I'm sure he probably liked it. There's one man I want to hear from, and that is our, our resident uh, Goddard virgin, uh, Zach Bryant. Let us know. What did you think of Yves Sabi? <laughs> so I, I got a quick question, Adam. I'm, I'm just curious from your standpoint, because I know you mentioned that eventually you get to a point with Goddard where you find him, I don't know, let's say the word pretentious, because that's the word that's coming to mind. Probably the uh, best word for it, yeah. So the three you picked, how did you think I was going to feel about them? I'm, I'm curious of your thoughts. Oh, I well, love I, the way this is starting. Hmm. <laughs> so, well, I'll, I'll give you the reason why I chose these films. I chose these films because I feel like these are Goddard at the line where he is trying to make great films as, you know, using filmic tropes. So what I mean by that is he's not trying to push the boundaries into being pure artful drivel. He's not trying to make something so dense that it completely changes the notion of being a film but he's making a narrative film that still pushes the boundaries and how films can be made. So I thought that would be a good entry point for someone like you who has never seen a Godard film. There was no point in me showing you something like the image book, which is 90 minutes of spliced together video collages that sell, tells a very nondescript story. No point showing you that you would hate it. You would think Godard is the biggest asshole in the world, um, which by that point in his life, maybe he was. So I wanted to show you something that I think is a reason why Godard is so revered. And these, these early films are the reason why people love him so much and why he's so influential. So where best to start with this period? So All it right. wasn't more so about me thinking about your particular taste. It was just me thinking about what's the best way to introduce Godard to you as an actual good filmmaker. Okay, fair enough. So um, we'll start with this one and I'm not even going attempt, to attempt to say it. So... Um, I will start with, uh, I think Godard is very, very good at framing. I think he, his films look really good. And then to the next part. Um, so I, the best summary I have of how I feel is this is what about an 83 minute film. Yeah. One hour, 20 something minutes. Yeah. We spent three or four of that, those minutes watching her write a letter in real time why <laughs> why <laughs> i don't understand <laughs> and i mean <laughs> i'm sitting here trying to get my thoughts i've thought about this for a few days there are things i liked about the movie but i i think the part that bothers me with godard and this will be a, a kind of a line through all three of them so less with the last one we talk about but definitely with the first two is he has these interesting concepts and these interesting moments, and then he decides to not show you the most interesting part of them. My example is uh, there is a vignette about a man being shot in the street. You know what you don't really see? The man getting shot in the streets. <laughs> like, I mean, call me shallow. 
but I was like, it perked me up a little bit. Like, okay, here's going to be some real conflict and drama that I'm going to get that isn't just philosophical French new wave bullshit. I'm going to get to see something, and then it doesn't really show it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So okay. That, 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 that was my feelings. I, I will sum it up there. All right, that's an interesting perspective. So I'll tell you what I, lo- what I love about the film, and maybe that might help contextualize why it's, it, it does the things that you're mentioning. So one thing I, what I love about this film is that it is essentially a portrait. It is a portrait of one person. It is, this is why it's framed this way. It's framed in a very narrow, um, what you call it, format? No, is that the right word? Format? Uh, you're talking about aspect ratio? Aspect ratio, that's it. It's a very tight aspect ratio, very thin, very narrow, very painterly. It's done like that so that our one focus throughout the film is um, Nana, I think this character's called? Yeah. Nana Cream's yeah. character. Nana. So apparently, I was just in that special feature you sent. He kept referring to her as Nana. Yeah. And and I clicked around, and there's a lot of references to Nana. So I think it's, anyways, for what it's worth. Yeah, I'm 99% sure that's her character. I know it's not ideal. That's her character in Band of Outsiders. Uh, so it must be Nana. Um, it's framed like that because it's a portrait of her. It's about her experiences. It's about her life. It is very much a realist picture something that Goddard doesn't really do a lot. Uh, a lot of the time, a lot of his films are a bit more freewheeling, as we'll get to later on with the last film we'll talk about. Um, he never really made a picture like this again, where it was such a sort of realist take on a woman's life in, in these vignettes. We see her write a letter because she was writing a letter. It's as simple as that. You know, I know it kind of weirds you out that she did it in real time, but he wanted to show us her writing a letter because that's what her character was doing at that moment. We don't see the man getting shot because Nana doesn't see the man getting shot. She runs out of the place. So it doesn't, re- that, that, what I'm trying to say is that the man getting shot in the street is not that important. She's just experiencing it and we're following her experience of that. I can get why that you wouldn't like that, but that is why that happens because this is a portrait of a woman. This is a portrait of her life. We're only really focused on her. If we wanted to see the wider world, then he would have shot it in a wider aspect ratio, which we'll get into with, with Le Mepri. Um, But this is very much a very narrow focused film on the character. It's it's very much, a, it's as character driven a piece as possible, both technically and sort of narratively. And I get what you're saying. And I, and I don't want to discredit that there isn't artistic merit here, because I'm not going to even pretend to say that about, about him as a filmmaker. I'm, I'm sure there is. But I also have to put, he is the writer. So I understand that he's filming this because she doesn't see this perspective. And maybe that's not the most interesting part. And I actually don't even oppose that. If the most interesting part isn't watching the violence or experiencing the violence, then it should be that reaction is the more interesting part. And I really don't get, maybe I'm just not, I don't feel a lot for her as an actress, you know. I thought about coming in here and comparing him to Rob Zombie about putting his wife in all of his films. I decided that I wasn't going <laughs> to do that. But like, it's not that she's a bad actress, and I actually think she's better in this than she was in uh, Band of Outsiders. Um, and I think she's the most interesting part. But I don't really get a lot from the reaction. Like, I don't even remember what her reaction to that event was because I don't think it lasts much longer than after the event happens, but I could be misremembering. So I don't know. I feel like if you're going to go for what is her experience dealing with like this violence that's so near her? I feel like we need to actually explore that. And I don't feel like we do, or if we do, I missed it somehow, um, which is fair. I, I may have been. 
Can I just say this is such a fascinating take? I and Zach, I'm not picking on you at all. I have never. I can't imagine not being smitten by Anna Karina just walking around being cute. Um, I mean, I'm not saying she's not. Like, <laughs> you had a good taste in women. Good for you, man. Like, it's I, funny. It's funny because I, I genuinely think this is one of the greatest acting performances in film history. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think it's one of the best uh, performances in film history, and I find it so funny that uh, she spends so much time watching. Um, Passion of Joan of Arc, yeah. which features probably the greatest acting performance in film history, because um, the film has so many parallels to Joan of Arc, both in terms of the how the film is shot, you know, the oblique framing, which Joan of Arc is so well known for, how crazy the framing is, it looks so alien even now, uh, and this film does a lot of uh, exploration with unique framing styles, persecuted women, all that, you know, there's a lot of parallels between the two films, and I think that, that Anna Karina, who, to, for the most part, I think she just looks cute in movies. I don't think she's actually that great of an actress. Um, Band of Outsiders, she's not all that great. Um, she's pretty good in Poirot Le Fou. She's, you know, she's, she's pretty good in A Woman is a Woman. She's definitely a capable actress, but I think she stepped up her game massively to match the sort of lofty heights of Joan of Arc, where there were so many other parallels. She couldn't afford to not be good in this movie. Um and I, yeah, like I said, I think it's. And I, I mean, I, I wonder if I have more appreciation if I had ever seen Passion of Joan of Arc because I've never seen that either. Great film. It's really, yeah. really. It's been on my list for a long time. I've just never seen it. Um, but I, I will say that I was extremely skeptical going into Passion of Joan of Arc that I would be able to like it at all. And it like was a hundred times better than I expected. It's just something in that movie. Like, I don't know what he did, but um, it was amazing. I think one of the questions for me was, so this is ranked as the 129th best movie of all time. Okay. Um, Zach, you might appreciate it. It's right below Rosemary's Baby. So Rosemary's Baby is better. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, but so it's if we're going there. on a competition of which director was probably a better person, I think Godard might win no matter how, much, how I feel about his movies. <laughs> Well, there's less stories about him, but um, <laughs> who knows for sure. But yeah, no, it's probably, I mean, uh, if you're going to compare against Polanski, you have, <laughs> you're going to win that battle more often than I. Um, you know, I think I'm probably in the middle of, of where y'all are um, landing right now. This is not my favorite Godard, uh, Godard movie, but I... You know, watching that documentary that you should that you asked us to watch around the framing and the, some of the technical aspects was very interesting. Um, I think I like I like Godard I, the way that he shoots and the way that he kind of edits and writes. I enjoy his films better when he's also trying to be funny or sarcastic or satirical. I think for me it works better um as an overall story so i'm not talking about the technical side um i'm fine saying that this was a masterpiece like i you know i'm I, I'm, I'm learning about that side of filmmaking but that's certainly not how i came into it um however <clears throat> there are certain things in this movie that i really i think are very excellent the, the one scene where she's up um and kind of dancing it the her I guess pimp is, is talking with a guy and there's another guy playing pool and she's dancing around more than being cute. 
although she looks great in that scene. She dances I, like a dork. That's how much I love. <laughs> I love that scene because she's such a dork dancing. She And she has, it's like this pure moment for her where she's, you know, she, there's a lot of conflicting emotions going on and she's frustrated and she just wants to dance to kind of like escape almost, I think, or at least that's how I read it. Um, and I, and I love his choice there of like, she's trying to, cause I think the title of that tableau is even something about how she's having doubts about her choices or something. So it kind of sets it up that, you know, she's having this conflict and you, you get to see her. And this is what people do when they're trying to escape, right? They, they numb out, they go back to what brings them joy. Um, and so I don't know. I thought that scene was very, very, very good. Great scene. Um, and I, it also made me Google what, what, what version of pool has no pockets. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys noticed that the pool table had no pockets. I, and only so three what balls, is the objective so. of the game? Just to get it to a certain side? So from what I, what, from what I Googled, it's called French Billiards. And there's basically two white balls and a red ball. And one of the white balls has a marker. So that's your cue ball. And the idea is that if you can, you need to hit the other white ball and the red ball in one move to get a point. And so the objective is obviously to make sure that you hit them both, but also separate them so that your opponent can't hit them both at the same time. So the idea is to try and get the two balls close together so you can hit them both so that you can get a point. And then whoever, I don't know if you go up to a certain amount of points or if there's a time limit on it and the most points wins, I don't know. But when I Googled it, that's what I was able to find out about French billiards. You know, I think that sums up the French perfectly. They take out the most <laughs> interesting part of pool and make it way more complicated than it needs to be. <laughs> that's your summation of Yves Savi? That's, that's it. There it is. <laughs> I, I actually billiards. don't want to be too hard on this, but I, of the three, it was my second favorite. So I, I did appreciate a lot about it. I would like to go revisit it again because I do find myself that when I revisit things, when I, I think I have a natural objection when I feel like I have to watch something, I get a little bit more critical of it. So I'll be curious to see when I'm in the right mind, if I'll think differently of it the second time. Now, the one I thought last, I don't think my opinion about it's going to change. But this one, I can at least say, you know what, different mind, different time of day, not feeling like I waited too long to watch this because I'm an idiot. Maybe it feels different. I feel like it has the most that I can grow from watching it. Like I could feel like I could end up liking it a lot more than I do right now. Yeah, I think, I think I the first aggravated by certain points and I really <laughs> pushed down on those because they really aggravated me. You were desperate to see some um, Assault on Precinct 13 style gunning down. Yeah, well, and this is a book too, probably more band of outsiders. But I feel like Godard thinks he's cooler than he is. Like, I feel like he thinks he's Melville cool, based on the one Melville film I've seen. And he's not. Like, it, 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 it sometimes it comes off a little tryhard, especially in band of outsiders, which I will save that. And I actually like band of outsiders. Uh, but I was like, this isn't nearly as cool as he thinks it is. At least to me. Ooh, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with the fact that Goddard thinks he's cool. He's a freaking dork. I mean, he's a, he's a nerd. Maybe, maybe I'm misreading his intention, which is very much possible. I don't know anything about the guy, but like, like the, and maybe that's, Goddard, the maybe you'll give me a new perspective on something <laughs> and that'd be great. And I'll think of the movie completely differently. But I was just like, this feels like it's cooler than it's, than it's supposed to be. <laughs> I, I, I'll give, I, I'll sort of expand on this thought more at Band of Outsiders later on. But, um, 
Godard thinks he's cool in the same way that Quentin Tarantino thinks he's cool. Um, it's probably the best way I can maybe sum it up. Um, well, know, I mean, made... isn't like uh, Godard like one of Tarantino's like favorites or something? Oh yeah, yeah. Like again, we'll get to this in Band of Outsiders. The French title for that film is Band Apart. The name of Quentin Tarantino's production company is Band Apart. Um, right. So yeah, we can we can see that straight away. <laughs> so sorry, go ahead. Chris. Maybe just real quick on that point before before we move on. So he, he, I don't know about cool, but what one of the reasons, Zach, if this helps, or uh, you know, Adam, you tell me if you think I'm way off. But one of the things I've always liked about Jean-Luc Godard, even as I've kind of seen, you know, I don't, I haven't seen a hundred of his films, but I've seen a decent amount. Is it feels close to something that is known in film, like it feels close to a genre that is that we know, but it's it's like his spin on it, right? So he's constantly experimenting, and he's constantly tweaking and saying like, no, 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 I know old Hollywood, I get it, like I like musicals, but <clears throat> there's a way to do it differently. So I'm gonna make a woman as a woman and show that you know I'm gonna like I don't know I hate to like deconstruct a musical and make it feel exactly like a musical, but have almost no music in it uh, or singing in it, right? 100%, like he, yeah. Yeah, it's, like he's so comfortable exactly. with these genres that he can kind of play with them. Exactly. He's such he's such a huge cinephile. You know, if I don't know if you knew much about him, uh, Zach, but he was, a, he was a film critic uh, before he got into filmmaking. So um, huge Isn't that kind cinephile. of how like, True Plot was too? Or yeah. yeah, oh yeah, they yeah. were all part of the same film journal, Cahiers de Cinema. Uh, they all worked for the same French film journal, which is still running to this day. Uh, it's probably one of the most important film journals in the world, um, but especially during this period. Um, so huge cinephile, uh, especially of American movies. He was huge, huge, huge praise for Sam Fuller and Nick Ray in particular. Uh, he used to really love those movies. I think he said something like cinema is Johnny Guitar. Uh, something along those lines, which I, I totally agree with Johnny Guitars in as an amazing movie. Um, but 100 percent as Chris said, he kind of did he kind of did what Tarantino tries to do. Um, but Tarantino tends to borrow more than deconstruct. Uh, like Vives V is essentially his version of a dryer movie, a Carl Theodore dryer movie, in terms of the very um austere, spared down kind of performance no sort of crazy special effects nothing to just really sort of de- like sort of real character studies uh, with with really unique framing um breathless you know is his version of a film noir you know band of outsiders could be said in the same way so he all and as obviously chris already mentioned a woman as a woman is essentially a, a musical without the music um so he, he does always play with that. And he's, his films have so many different styles. And this is, again, why I chose these three particular films. I think they're also different stylistically from one another, that we can really see a broad range of his abilities as a filmmaker. Um, you know, the films that we're going to talk about literally came out one year after another, 62, 63, 64. But they all show such unique styles, even though they're only three years you know apart, you know, well, one year each, so a three-year period. Um, so yeah, I think nobody can deny, and you even said this yourselves, like nobody can deny his talent as an actual technical filmmaker. Um, his films are sort of objectively, technically very good. Um, but I can understand maybe why you wouldn't connect with this kind of story. Um, I particularly love it just because I'm a big character 
guy. You know, I love a character drama. Um, and I just love how this film looks so much. Um, the, the framing in this is just phenomenal. That that sort of opening scene where we just see the back of her head for like five minutes, that's crazy. Nobody else would have done that. That's an insane decision. Why would you film the back of somebody's head uh, for that long and just have them talk? Uh, it's just It's just the ideas he had were just... Yeah, they were just unlike anyone, anything anyone else would have ever done. Nowadays, you know, you'll see that kind of thing, no problem. Um, you know, I think of Marcellus Wallace, the back of his head in Pulp Fiction. Would Tarantino have done that without Goddard? Probably not. Oh, sorry, I should be saying Goddard, not Goddard. <laughs> we don't pronounce the D. <laughs> Which doesn't make sense to me, but sure. <laughs> Why put it there if you don't pronounce it? <laughs> Um, I, I, do you think it's worth talking about like the flow of the story? Because that's the thing that I think, you know, you we we basically watch this descent, right? We see the characters start married, although or or at least in a relationship, although it's in trouble, and then we see her going from somewhat stable and with a house and and in a relationship to like a descent into kind of, you know, I don't know. I don't know that he was necessarily trying to say that prostitution is bad, but I think more just it's, it's a step down for her in terms of her mental health and like well being. And as she gets caught up in this world, she just kind of slowly descends into being more sad. And then obviously has a, I don't know if we want to talk about the ending, but I mean, it's just, you know, it ends, it ends on a sad note. Um, I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I was, I kept expecting there to be some redemption. And I think going back to what we've been talking about, I, I, I'm sure he did this on purpose. Like I'm sure he made it this way on purpose because in most movies, her character would have a little bit of redemption. There would be an opportunity for that. Um, I think it's too, um, I think what Godard is trying to say in this film is how quickly things can go so completely wrong. Um, and again, I'll, I'll just jump back to, this is like one of his only sort of early films that does rely heavily on realism. You know, a lot of his other films are so tongue in cheek. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, this is a film that really relies on on, on realism. Um, not not everybody gets redemption. Very few people get redemption. And also a lot of the people you find in these circumstances, whether it be homelessness, prostitution, drug dealing, drug addiction, whatever it may be, a lot of those people will tell you how quickly things went wrong. Once one thing went wrong, how quickly everything else went wrong and how quick. I know we're, this is supposed to be a slow descent into prostitution, but it, it can also happen very quickly. And, you know, obviously the film is quite short. So to us, it all happens very quickly. And I think that, I think that's what Goddard is trying to say in this film and why he offers no, no, no meaningful redemption for the character, because that's not realistic. And that's the story he wants to tell is, you know, for, for one of the first times in his career, he just wanted to tell a real true story that's sort of emotionally effective that, you know, will actually you know people can sit in the theater or sit at home and think geez you know 
this could happen to me or this has happened to somebody I know, this is really terrible, you know, rather than something like Breathless, you know, about car thieves and mischief and getting the cute American girl and all that kind of stuff, which is very fun. And, you know, I love it. Um, but at the same time, and you know, you guys know I'm a big fan of realism, especially the Italian stuff. Um, and I think that's, I think Goddard is simply just showing a tale of, I got maybe, maybe a cautionary tale might be a bit of a stretch, but just a tale of how quickly someone who seems quite stable can, you know, turn into something as unstable as possible. Yeah. So what I think I will do for you, Adam, because I do, I, I, I want to preface that as much as I joke about Godard, not D, um, I did go into these <laughs> wanting to like them. I did not go into any of these hoping to hate them and wanting to tear them apart. So what I want to do to really show that I did not, I went into this with the best frame of mind. After I watch Joan of Arc, I will go back and rewatch this one and see how my appreciation goes. Yeah, that, that's that's cool. I think, now again, I'm not going to promise you're going to like it better the second time. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the time, and I think we'll all speak to this, we've all had these moments in our sort of film watching lives that we've not really connected with something one time and then we watch it again or a third time and it just hits you in a different way, like I said, in a different frame of mind. So I think that's always a good practice uh, for all of us, really. Um that you know gives something a second chance the next one we're going to talk about um i i i kind of struggled with it the first time i saw it and then when we watched it again uh last year in, in the film club it kind of completely changed um so i think that's always a healthy thing to do to revisit something after you know in a different frame of mind or after a certain amount of time what's i mean the, i thought you were just like content because french lang is in it like <laughs> i mean that gives it bonus points at the beginning right <laughs> What's the movie that I have to watch before Vertigo so that I can like it? Uh, Verti Vertigo. Do you watch yeah, Vertigo? Yeah, just rewatch it two times in a row. Yeah, pretty much. Because <laughs> I didn't like Vertigo when I first saw it. I, I I was like, what the hell is this? This is so overrated. I don't even know what's going on. Thank you. Um, so there you go. Just, let's keep watching Vertigo and rinse and repeat until your opinion like changes. It. Yeah, like yeah. Stockholm <laughs> Syndrome yourself. Yeah. <laughs> this exactly. is the best like with with that uh, my eyes taped open exactly. <laughs> like, clockwork, clock, orange clockwork orange yourself exactly <laughs> so we're gonna go from talking about a very closed off squared in black and white character drama to talk about another character drama but shot in the most opposite way possible with the beautiful colors and wide lens of cinemascope uh, the next year, 1963, Godard made a film called Le Mépris, or Contempt, as it's more widely known as in the English-speaking world. Um, the letterbox definition for this is super overly complex. So I'm just going to give you my own. Uh, essentially, the film follows a writer who is hired to work on a production uh, of an adaptation of The Odyssey. Um, there's a lot of tension on set between the director, Fritz Lang, playing himself, and the American producer, and the writer is trying to get on the producer's good side and may or may not accidentally solicit his wife to that producer, which ends up disintegrating their marriage. Um, once again, Zach, I'm going to jump on. You're, you're going to be the first one up every okay. time. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, this was definitely my least favorite of the three. 
which you said you didn't like it the first time. So who knows? But I really, really, and I, we'll have to spoil the end because that is probably one of my biggest grievances with the movie as a whole. Uh, but we'll we'll wait on that. But um, I do want to say I would totally watch Homer's Odyssey directed by a nearly blind Fritz Lang. Like, I would watch it. The dailies looked so bad, though. They looked terrible. <laughs> I don't know if I would watch them. <laughs> I just love that scene of the guy, like, when they're filming, I guess, the ocean shot where he's just putting his arms up. And I'm like, there's no way that looks good. Like, there's no <laughs> But, um, uh, yeah, I, I ask, mean, what what is it that you didn't, like, what, what is the thing that just, like, stuck in your craw as you were watching this? Um. Feel like and I'm sure this is like a deconstructing of melodrama. I just don't find it a very compelling melodrama. Like I really just hated that entire marriage to the point where I was not enjoying the movie. I was oh, like, this is yeah. an interesting melodrama. This is just not good melodrama. <laughs> like I, I want it, I don't know. And like I said, and it's gonna I'm gonna seem like a hypocrite when we talk about the end, but I'll get there. I, we're going to get the tie-in fat girl and everything. So this is oh, wow. I've gotten to complain for both. So Amazing. yeah, I just, you know, it, I, I, from what I've seen in my limited sample size, give me boxed in black and white guitar. I like it better. <laughs> I'm yeah. super surprised. I thought you would have loved how this film looks. This is one of the most beautiful. It does films look I've good. I, I'm not going to sit there and say it doesn't. It, it looks good. And, um, and I also really usually like like filmmaking movies. Like I, I tend to like those. I think it's interesting to like see the the issues with making films and stuff. But I didn't even find that all that compelling. Um, and maybe it's where I saw like the most chaotic version of this with Babylon, like last month, where everything is high energy and what it makes you question why people make movies anyway. Like this sounds terrible. <laughs> and then to come to this, and I'm like, okay. I was like, I just, I guess I wanted more out of that element than I got. Um, Fritz Lang was, I don't know if he was an actor before. He actually didn't do that bad. I actually thought he did all right. I was surprised because I'd never seen him acted anything. I, I have one more question, if it's okay, um, Adam, before, before you uh, say, take your take. I have an idea, Zach. You know how, like, I don't know, I don't know how old you were when you first got exposed to Shakespeare, but for me, I hated Shakespeare. Uh, not not because mostly because i just i didn't like the iambic pentameter i was like you know when i first read it i was like people don't talk like this like i was so confused i had to go i, I had i was involved in theater when i was in high school and we did a shakespeare play and um i had to go to my english teacher and go after school for an hour every day for like three weeks to have any idea what my very small character role it was even about like i just my brain just didn't work that way right once she broke it down i was like okay fine i guess you know so after some time like my point is i got used to that that rhythm right and i think godard if you if, if you're one of your biggest beefs is the way that the couple engages with each other then i think th that's interesting because you know good in all of his movies couples engage with each other in, in in a similar way like he has a way of writing kind of relationships right and I think his editing style and the, the dialogue and the way they interact and the fact that they're distant from each other, even when they're, and then the next second they'll be close and they'll be trying, like, like it's a very kind of jarring style of showing a relationship. 
Um, and I'm wondering if it's just that it, it is definitely um, uh, has, has elements of reality, but is an artificial way of showing a relationship, right? If you compare it to like a link later or somebody who just like holds the camera there and lets them kind of duke it out. Um, right. So I'm wondering if it's just something in the way that between his writing and his editing and the way that he views, like the way that he shows that relationship that is just uncomfortable for you or that is not, it feels fake or just doesn't settle well. I think, and I don't want to sit here and say he can't write women because I don't think that's fair. I, I think he puts a lot of focus on it. I don't know if I necessarily like the way he writes women. I, like, I don't typically get engaged with those with his women characters, and I just don't know the reason why. Mm. I, they don't feel very interesting, and I feel like they need to be. Like I, I'm not going to say that for all three, but for this one, I don't, I don't even remember her name. I'm trying to remember it. I didn't even find her that all that compelling, and when you're doing it like this falling apart marriage i think both characters need to feel interesting to have this dynamic and i just kind of felt a little bit of a loss during those scenes because of that and i mean i i do i I didn't really particularly we're going to keep referencing band of outsiders but i didn't particularly like uh what's his wife's name i can't even remember her character in that i i didn't really care for her um so I, I don't know if it's an issue with that. I, I just don't think he's the strongest at it, or I just don't like the way he does it. I, like I said, I don't want to sit here and put this broad thing where that a lot of filmmakers, male filmmaker writers get, they can't write women. I don't necessarily think that's true because I don't think they're badly written. I just don't think it feels as interesting as it could. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's an int- I don't think that's a particularly bad take at all. Um... You know, a lot of his a lot of his female characters are are kind of, you know, are there as dressing uh, for yeah. for them for their male counterparts. So I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a bad take in any way, shape, or form. Um, I have a lot to unpack about contempt, so I'll try and get into it, and I'll try and be as um, as concise as I can with doing so. So when I, I first watched Contempt many years ago, um, maybe like four, probably closer to five years ago, and. I knew it was a good film, but I didn't like watching it. Um, I was in a tough place and there's a lot of tough things that happen in this movie. I know you said you didn't really engage with the relationship. I did a little bit more and it was, it was a very tough watch and I ended up kind of more hyper-focusing on that stuff than on the film itself. So when we revisited it um, last year in the film club, I was a bit apprehensive about revisiting this movie um, because it had an emotional effect on me when I first watched it that I didn't like. Um, But I saw it with completely different eyes the second time and I ended up doing a lot more research about it. And I came away feeling a little bit differently about, well, actually a lot differently about the film and that I think it's a masterpiece. Um, I think if we're going to go purely objectively, technically speaking, I think this has got Art's best film. Um, Vavre Civi is probably my favorite, but I think Contempt in terms of pure filmmaking is probably his best film, um, which is just my opinion. Um, but there's there's a lot to unpack in this movie that you might not get on the first watch. I certainly did not get it on the first watch. And it took me also doing some research about the film, kind of reading about the process and why he made it um, for me to kind of fully get a grasp on what's happening here. So for me, this film is less about 
a marriage disintegrating and more so about Goddard's relationship with mainstream cinema. Um, essentially, the main conflict in this movie is not necessarily the, the writer and his wife breaking up. It is about the, the thing that sparks it, um, about him insisting that he takes a that she takes a ride back to the villa with this sleazy American producer. That is essentially a moment of solicitation and it ends up being a question of what would you trade to be successful and how much will it ultimately cost you? Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I opened my review of this film. I think it still speaks true now. To be a successful filmmaker or a successful artist or a success in general in, in your life, in your career, how far are you willing to go and what are you willing to give up in order to do that? The writer, I think his name is Paul. Paul, I believe his name is, essentially allows his wife to potentially be sort of hit on, potentially even assaulted by this producer in order to be in his good graces so that he can get this job working on this big film because it will kickstart his career where he was previously just a playwright. And his wife obviously naturally gets super pissed about it and ends up disintegrating their marriage. I feel like this is Goddard's way of saying that he was on, that he is unwilling to sort of match what sort of mainstream producers would want from him. He wouldn't want to pay this price. He is happy to like long, which is kind of his stand in for this. He makes wants to make the film his way. He doesn't care what the producers want to do he's going to make it his way no matter what. And there's a lot of ironic moments in this, in this film that even happen in real life. So this film was actually a co-production um, with an American company who I can't remember which one it was, but this was a co-production with an American company. Um, and that's why, obviously why they had an American playing an American producer, Jack Palance, I think it was, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing Prokash, the sleaziest, scummiest guy. I think he's just one of the slimiest, squirmiest characters. He makes my skin mm-hmm. crawl. Really great character, really well written. Um, but again, I'm trying to make this as concise as possible, but I have so many swirling thoughts about this movie that I want to kind of contextualize some of the moments in it. So there's a really infamous scene at the start of the movie where Bridget Bardot is lying naked on a bed and it's like some post-lovemaking scene from a, from a melodrama. Um, and that was shot after the film was wrapped at the insistence of the American producers. They said, we're paying all this money for Bridget Bardot. We want to see her ass. You know, mm-hmm. that was essentially mm-hmm. the Americans, what they wanted. And Godard didn't really want to do this, but he his arms were kind of shackled. And it's so ironic that he'd written and filmed most of this film about, um, you know, having to bow down to producers making you want to do things you don't want to do. Um, he he shot this he shot the scene, but you guys obviously noticed that overlaid over the scene were the French colors, the the blue, white, and red. The color kind of changes throughout the scene. So that was just his kind of way of sticking his middle finger up to the producers, you know. I'm going to be cheeky. Yeah, I'm going to give you your ass shot of Bridget Bardot, but you're going to have to look at the French colors while, while you're doing it um, just so I can get the last laugh on, on you guys. And I think another thing that really helps understand this movie is your understanding of the Odyssey, the actual source material that's being filmed. Uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the Odyssey. I wasn't very familiar when I first watched it, but I became more familiar um, last year 
because in college I was studying Ulysses, the James Joyce. So naturally that has a lot of allusions to the Odyssey. So I became very aware of the story of the Odyssey through that before I had watched it. And there's a lot of allusions to the Odyssey. Paul is essentially Odysseus. Um, Bridget Bardot is essentially Penelope. And a lot of the questions that Paul would be asking himself are the same kind of things that Odysseus might ask himself. What did Penelope really get up to while I was away? Because we never see an infidelity from Camille, Bridget Bardot's character, uh, until towards the end. But, you know, the moment in the car that kind of sparks all the action in this movie, we're never shown that. We don't really know what happened. And those are the same kind of questions Odysseus might have been asking himself while he was away. What was Penelope up to? Did, you know, was she faithful? And those are the questions that Paul asks me. So I'm sorry to unload so much crap on you in the last two minutes. That's probably didn't sound very structured because it wasn't. I was just spitballing things that came into my head about why I think this is a great movie that has a lot more to offer than just a simple fam, you know, marriage melodrama. That is like the most baseline version of this film. And which is, again, what this is what I thought the film was about when I first saw it, Zach. So I'm not picking on you or anything. This is, ex- I had your exact thoughts when I first saw it. Um, but there is so much to peel away at this movie when you watch it and when you kind of research and read into the production of it. Um, I think if, if any of these three films you should rewatch, I think this is the one that you should rewatch because it is, it is way more layered than it initially looks. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely fair. And that does actually give me quite a bit to think on. Um, I, I do know it's been a long time since I've read Homer's Odyssey. I actually read it, uh, little off tangent but lost references <laughs> all the time so that's of course yes <laughs> lost does it uh, for me every time but um nice. it's it's an it's an interesting thought and it's something I, I had not considered a lot watching it i guess i should have put it may have been me not giving enough credit that the whole homer's odyssey thing wasn't just window dressing like it doesn't really matter what movie this is like sort of thing so i think that maybe was a little unfair by me and i should have thought more about that like how it connects to the overall story so yeah that that gives me quite a bit to thank on for it i'll give you a bit of a spoil i'll give you and the listeners a bit of a spoiler for an upcoming video that i'm going to do for our youtube channel um i am going to do a video essay on this film okay um so i'm not going to have any spoilers per se in it um so maybe give that a watch when it comes out might help contextualize some stuff before you watch it. If you ever watch the film again, it okay. might help contextualize some stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, I could see myself rewatching it more before we started recording than I could, than I, you know, now I, I could see myself actually watching because I didn't think about a lot of that. So that's really fascinating to me. Um, and, you know, if it's an excuse to, not necessarily ignore all the stuff, but not put so much importance on the marriage. That sounds great to me. And I probably would enjoy it more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think as we always do, like I'm interested in, you know, this is considered the 40th best film of all time. So, 40? Really? Yeah. So it's up there with, I mean, you know, it, it's, that means a lot of people have it on their list on some level. Right. Um, right. Uh, honestly speak like I, I don't want to influence you know one way or the other but for what it's worth I think this is my favorite Godard film I, I think like for me I just love watching it like I think 
that that same thing where I was talking about the editing and the dialogue and the way characters interact and all that. Um, I like it. I, th I find it interesting. Um, I, it's very different from how people really talk, right? But I, I find it interesting in a way. Like I'm kind of, it's almost like um, an escape or something for me. I don't know how, I don't know how else to say that. Um, but I, I think more than anything, this, I just love watching this movie. Like I think it's, I, I love watching the, like fallen down, decrepit Cinecita Studios when he's walking through it. It's like, you know, this, um, it's almost like walking through, you know, Greek ruins or ruins or Roman ruins. It's like this behemoth of cinema is now kind of falling apart. Um, and they're, they're looking for money from anywhere. So they're kind of selling their soul to this American producer that nobody wants to work with. And he's exactly who he thinks, like who they think he's going to be, uh, maybe even worse. Um, and I don't know, just the way it kind of plays on filmmaking and Fritz Long's role is perfect. And I don't know, I just I, like, I guess I could, you know, this is one of those movies that I want it to be twice its length. And I just kind of, I, I just like kind of basking in it. Um, it, it hits me in, in, in a good way. Um, so I, there's a lot that's already been said on it by us. I, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to convince you or anything, Zach. I, I totally get it. There's a lot of critically acclaimed movies that don't hit with me, but for whatever reason, this one just does. I, I it's like a, it's like a warm blanket almost. I just, I think it's, I don't know. I love it. No, in all fairness, please. I, and I, I don't say this facetiously. Please tell me why I'm wrong. I <laughs> first to tell anyone, I don't like not liking things. I really yeah. don't. I don't enjoy yeah. it. Um, I, I want to be part of I want to be part of that. Like I, I I want to understand that. So please give me any perspective you want to. I do not take it personally. Um, I think this is all interesting. Yeah, I, I also don't want to turn this into let's educate Zach on why he's wrong podcast. Um, exactly. But one other thing that I will recommend, and I know Chris, you watched one of them, but it will. I think it will help. Um, and I I put this in our Discord. Um. The Criterion channel has a series called Observations on Film Art. They're really short. Uh, they're like 15, min or 15 minutes or less most of the time. And there's like 40-odd episodes of them that cover all types of movies. But there is an episode each on this film and Viva Savie that go into the technical aspects and why they're important to the story. Um, mm -hmm. And I would really recommend watching them because I think it looks puts a lot of context um, around mainly the technical aspects, but it does touch a lot on the themes of the movies as well. Um, you know, the reason why they're shot this way is thematically relevant. Yeah. So if you get a chance, sir, I think they're like 12 and 13 minutes long each. So it'll take you half an hour to watch both of them. Um, and that's just not a recommendation for you, Zach. It's a recommendation to our listeners as well, because it's a really great series that not a lot of people talk about on the Criterion channel, because they're like really far down. You just scroll down loads just to get to that section on the on their on their sort of homepage. Um but really interesting little little series that are all sort of put together by film um professors and stuff. So people who know what they're talking about. Much more educated people than me um, can tell you why it's good. And just like anything, I think you know one of the reasons I like that um Adam when I was watching it is I didn't you know I treat it like uh, data points, right? The, the, we, the conversation we had with Daisuke, this came up and I think it's very true. 
just because there's a commentary track by an esteemed professor or writer on film, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. It's just sometimes it's nice for these films that are, are deemed and stamped to say, like, this is canon. Sometimes it's nice to have that perspective as to why, right? We were talking about a lot of these movies that no one's ever seen. But even for the ones that we can see easily, it doesn't mean that we're going to get it right away, right? Like, I I struggle a little bit with the one called, um, oh, shoot, what's it called? Too, too, too near, too far? No. What's the one? It's a, oh, shoot. It's a, it's a, um, um, I'm not going to remember the name here for a second, but there's a, it's a documentary and it's people are just like gaga for this film, but it's, um, if I can't find it quickly, I don't want this to take too long. Anyways, yeah, I'm not going to be able to find it quickly, but there, there, there's uh, this movie that was, you know, was even someone in our discord, it's in his top 10. Um, and it was on this, they shoot pictures list very high up. I just didn't get it. Like, I, 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 but you know, hearing the context and the commentary was interesting, and I understand why people like it. <laughs> I just it didn't change my opinion on it, but at least I could, you know, have that argument. Yeah, context. I think context is always good, um, whether it be historical, technical, thematic. I think it's always good to get context because I think you rightly said. You don't have to agree with something, not everything. You don't have to like everything, but I think context might even let you appreciate it. You know, we've talked about plenty of times in this podcast of films we watched where we're not necessarily loved it, not going to be in our top 100. We'll never sit down and watch it again, but, you know, you might appreciate its scope or appreciate it technically or, you know, say, I understand why people like this. It doesn't really sit well with me because at the end of the day, art is subjective. I can sit here and tell you guys that Space Jam is the greatest film ever made and I I cannot be objectively proven to be incorrect because it just doesn't exist in art. And because it's true. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's that's always important. This is why it's great that we always have such great different viewpoints on movies. This film would be very boring if we all just sat here and jerked off Goddard for two hours. That would be no fun <laughs> uh, for, any, for anyone involved. Um, so I think it's always nice to have these conflicting opinions. Um, too, sorry, too early, too late. That's the one. Too early, too late. <laughs> too early, too Nin- late. I can't even say I've heard of it. 1981, it German doc, uh, very experimental, and I think overrated. <laughs> oh, I see essay film, and I'm immediately turned off. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that's on the sight and sound top two fifty something, is it? No, 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 no. It, it, oh, um, it actually makes me happy because. Um, it has since fallen out of the top 1,000 of they shoot pictures. Now it's in the 1100s. So I feel somewhat justified that it's falling off people's favorite list. Vindication. <laughs> 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 yeah. The same way I feel whenever I see The Night of the Hunter slowly move up the list. One well, day it will be number one. Well, you'll please, finally get your... Please. Yeah. You'll finally get your upvotes on Reddit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Such <laughs> so a hot I- take for me to say that's a good film. Crazy. <laughs> which uh oh i meant to ask this during our last discussion so is that movie essentially just going to be gene dealman but like half the length the first one we watched viva C V. yeah is that just if i just watch that twice is it the same as watching just gene <laughs> dealman? 
Uh, I don't know if I could say that. I think Viva Savi <laughs> has way more stuff happen than Sean Dielman. Oh. Viva Savi is an action movie compared to uh, oh, Sean Dielman. Although, to be fair, I actually did like Sean Dielman when I watched it. Um, it's very meditative, uh, you know. It's just something that really kind of draws you in. It's it's uh, it's interesting. I think it's a really interesting movie. I'm not definitely not going to sit here and say it's the greatest film ever made. It's definitely not in my top 100, but it's not bad by any means, any way, shape, or form. Is it not bad? It's a very interesting picture. Um, but anyway, we won't get bogged down on that. Um, you mentioned the ending, Zach, and I, I kind of want to talk about the ending, if that's okay, because uh, it, it brings up a wider... Not, I don't necessarily want to talk about this ending specifically, but it's something in endings in uh, French New Wave films in general that I've, I've kind of noticed a trend in that I, I, I kind of find funny. Um, so I've noticed that a lot of French New Wave films end in what is essentially a punchline. And although this isn't the last shot of the movie, I know the part of the ending you're referring to, um, and it's not the last shot of the movie, um, but it's one of the last shots. Um, and French New Wave films do this thing where it ends on this kind of dark comedic um, punchline. Uh, Godard films especially do it quite a bit. Um, Breathless uh, does it. Uh, the next film we're going to talk about, Band Apart, does it somewhat as well. Uh, then you have other films outside of Godard that does it. So, you know, Elevator to the Gallows, for example, the end, the very, very end of that movie, if we remember when we watched that together many moons ago, uh, that ends on a kind of a punchline. Jules A. Jim, which is a film I, I freaking hate. Um, that that ends on a punchline. A lot of French New Wave movies do this, where they just kind of abruptly end, and you think, huh, you rascal, why did you end it that way? <laughs> um, and I always find it funny. It's it's a trend that I've noticed just kind of watching these movies. They always kind of have that that kind of sudden ending, where it's like, oh, okay. Oh, Viva Savi, of course, ends that way as well. Yeah. Um, Again, I don't know if I can sit here and say it's 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 funny, but it's certainly kind of like a dark punchline a lot of the time. So, and I'm glad you brought up that there seems to be this trend. I don't, I haven't watched a lot of French New Wave. I, I would, I think all the ones we've watched, I have watched with you guys. And from my understanding, Melville doesn't count. So I think I've seen no, yeah. So I've I've seen like four or five, five. I think five. I think we're at five. Um. But one thing I have noticed, and this, and I can't say it happens in all of them, but the fact that I've seen so few, and it's happened twice, of this idea that things are going apart, and then suddenly people just fucking die for no reason. Like, yeah, like I, I like my fair share of horror stuff. I, I see that all the time. But you know, there's a lead up to that. There's a chase or something that leads to death. It's like. Let's do Fat Girl. Oh, she's going to get raped and uh, her family's going to be horribly murdered. And I don't feel bad spoiling that for anyone because don't watch it. It's a, it's a new <laughs> experience of a movie. Um, and then we get to this one and it's like, oh, she's dead. I'm like, okay. It, it, it feels like the equivalent of and it was all a dream except for there's like these more consequences here. Everyone's dead. And I'm like, why is this a thing? Why do the French do this? Everyone's just dead. Yeah. I don't know it's kind of funny though uh, but i mean it i don't know about fat girl i i won't defend that but uh i had the exact same reaction that you did but i mean i think a lot of it comes down to your your philosophy on like life right like they they these are like they're i don't think that if you if you read any interviews with a lot of these 
a lot of these folks, like they they don't. I think number one, they they don't feel confined to make a movie the way that Hollywood makes a movie, right? So they do feel a freedom to just make the movie that they want. But also, a lot of these folks are either nihilists or at least they they have like a a different. They don't have that American dream. Everything's gonna work out at the end, right? Like like they're just fundamentally different people all like so i think that some of that is is just yeah like life sucks right like just when things start to get better you get in a car crash or sometimes you get you know shot by accident because your pimp turns out to be a scummy person or like whatever like you know it's just i'm not i'm not trying to make you like it but i think that that's just if i were to make a guess as to why they do it it's just why why not Right, like this is how things end sometimes. It's also I important to. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, was gonna, I, I understand, and I don't even like downer endings. I'm not here asking for everything to work out. This be you know a '60s Hollywood picture. But I, is that a compelling narrative? Like, maybe if it's an inciting incident, that can be a compelling narrative. But like to just sit there and follow these characters, and then at the end just because it's a little ironic. Yeah, I get the irony there that, you know, she probably hasn't cheated the entire time and now maybe she's considering it, maybe she's to make her jealous, but this is the way it's going to look forever. I get that. I think that's interesting. And I actually think that's one of the more interesting parts about this, but at the same time, I'm like, do I feel satisfied even if I believe you can be unsatisfied and still be a satisfying ending? I know that's kind of a hard thing to explain, <laughs> but... I don't know. I just don't feel satisfied in that ending at all. Like, I'm just like, why? And now that I have all the Homer Odyssey stuff, maybe when I rewatch it, I'll think of it differently. But my initial reaction is, why do that? Like, that's not interesting to me. Okay, so how it works in Contempt is going to be very different from any other French New Wave film. I think a lot of the time it's it's more down to, as Chris said, the nihilist aspect, the existentialist aspect, and also the fact that they're heavily influenced by film noirs, which often had those kind of nihilistic endings. Um, Contempt, I think the ending to that is a little bit different because, again, I see it as a metaphor um, of the consequences of selling your soul. Um, so and I suppose we'll give spoilers for this, um, for the ending. So at the end, obviously, we know that Paul has sold his soul. His wife has run off with the American producer, and they get into a terrible car accident, and they die. And that's that's the ending of the movie. Reads very simple um, on initial viewing. Now, this is not backed up by anything sort of um, academic or anything like that. This is just the way I read the movie. Um, if I'm following the same train of thought that, uh, Bridget Bardot's character is essentially a bargaining chip for Paul's success. I read this as what happens when you sell your soul. Um, so the two characters, the American producer is representative of the movie itself. Bridget Bardot's character is representative of Paul's soul. If you sell your soul to the devil, your soul is destroyed. The movie is going to be bad. So that's destroyed as well. Maybe I'm reading way too much into this. But that's how I see it. I don't see it as the same kind of punchline as something like, um, you know, some of the other films that I mentioned where it's just like, whoop, they died. Oh, well, that's life. C'est la vie. Um, I think this one's a little bit more, has a little bit more um, 
thematic undercurrents to it. I, I see that as this is what happens if you sell your soul to the American producers. Your film's going to be bad. Your soul's going to die. Art is going to die. That's the way I see it. But again, I could be reading way too much into it and giving it way too much credit. Um, I could be the crazy one here. Um, but that's the way I read it. So I think it's a little bit different in this film than it is in other French New Wave films, where I completely agree. Maybe it is unsatisfying to see just the characters that you follow die for no reason at the end of a movie. And that's fair enough. I, I think it's a little bit funny, especially because it happens so often. But I can get why it would annoy some people. Okay. Well, I, I am definitely going to have to sit on this movie for a bit and then retry it again. Because everything you're saying makes it sound way more interesting and i'm curious <laughs> if i watch it if i will find it that interesting because yeah. that's not to say it isn't it's just none of that's what i got out of the film watching it and i'm curious now that i have that how it will feel well again i'll just jump back art is subjective at the end of the day like i could be talking absolute utter nonsense and um, so you know hey, i like to take my word that's for my it, favorite so. thing like any of these discussions is just coming up with the most off-the-wall explanation for anything that's what i like that's what i enjoy so we've been we've, we've name dropped this movie throughout the whole episode so far we'll finally actually get into the nitty-gritty so uh the following year after contempt godard released a very very different movie uh once again uh called band of outsiders or band of power as it's known in french um again the letterboxed uh, synopsis of this is way overblown. So I'm just going to give you very brief my version. So essentially two dudes, they meet this young naive girl in an English class. They find out that her aunt that she lives with has a, another lodger who has a shit ton of money hidden and they're going to try and convince her to help them steal it. And that's, that's the movie. Very simple kind of neo-noir. Um, this was my favorite Godard movie for a long time. Um, when I first started watching Godard, this was my favorite Godard for a long, long time. And I haven't watched it probably in a similar amount of a gap between last time I watched, sort of between when I watched Contempt. So it's probably been about four or five years since I watched it. Um, I didn't like it as much this time, um, but I still think it's a really fun movie. So once again, Mr. Mr. Bryant, what are your thoughts on Band of Outsiders? Best of three. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna tell you you're wrong. <laughs> Definitely um, I'll, go, I, I'll actually give real thoughts. So uh, I, it, I'm sure before this, it probably sounded like I was gonna hate on it. And I do have like quite a few issues with this movie, which it sounds like Adam maybe will have similar ones. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, but overall, like I'll, I'll even give you my thought process while I was watching this. So I, this was the third one I watched. And I kind of already got into my head. It's like, Godard doesn't show any of the interesting stuff. He's mm -hmm. not going to show this stupid heist, and I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> and so thankfully, the last 35 minutes made up for it. I was like, oh, thank God we actually see it. I was Because my thought press was like, oh, my God, this is how fucking Tarantino came up with the idea to do the after the robbery shit in um, Reservoir Dogs. And we're not <laughs> going to see anything. <laughs> and I'm just going to end up mad and disappointed. And I was like, oh, cool. There's an actual scene. And I was pretty excited for that. So that was pretty great. <laughs> Chris, how do you feel? How do you sit on Band of Outsiders? Um, it's, so the world views it as number 588. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. 
Sure. It's right. Right. Uh, the Stanley Kubrick's The Killing is one above this. That's interesting. I do like The Killing better than this. Yeah. I, I maybe uh, do as well. Maybe I do too. I think it's, um, it's a, and there are obviously good parallels. To yeah. Films, so. <laughs> Something that uh, I think Jeremy should be very proud of, Down by Law, is slightly ahead of this. I feel like. Oh, I don't if, know if I agree with that. If there's anybody who's been influenced by Godard, it would be Jim Jarmusch. Yeah. Um, oh, that's explaining a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jim Jarmusch is essentially poor man's Godard. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, actually, it's funny you say that, Adam. I had almost the exact same reaction. So I remembered this movie being a lot cooler and like you know, i think i don't know like it was okay uh, you know i i still like the scene where they're sprinting through the louvre is, is iconic um some of the scenes are i i still think are, are, are fantastic um there, there's one scene in particular where oh shoot no no, no sorry that's uh I watched these so close together. Uh, well, I'll just get this out so you know what I'm talking about. There's a scene where Anna Karina is sitting down at a cafe and behind her, it, this is in uh, Vivre Seville, and there's a shot of the Paris street below her. And it's it's a picture, not a, not a window, but it looks like it could be either one. And the camera keeps panning back and forth. I don't know what it is about that scene, but I could watch that for another 10 minutes. I was just like captivated by that image, but it doesn't matter. That's not Bound of Outsiders. Um, yeah, it, it, this movie was okay. I, I think it it's not his best work, um, and I, 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 you know, it's interesting to see how much this influenced Pulp Fiction, um, and and some and some of the other movies. So I like it. I think it's a fun movie, um, and uh, yeah, let, let, we, can, we can keep going into more detail. But that's kind of my initial thoughts, I guess. In fairness, I probably like this more than Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah i definitely nice. i definitely do this is definitely kind of proto tarantino this is like the blueprint for for tarantino movies i think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um we it's influenced it's it's probably one of godard's even though again it's it's not my favorite um it used to be it's not my favorite anymore but it's probably one of his most influential just stylistically mm-hmm. and there's just so much stuff that happens in the movie that's super influential you know that dance scene in the cafe you know, that's been sort of referenced so many times throughout, you know, different movies and TV shows. You know, it's a very, very influential film. I think it's it's not as definitely not as cool. Uh it's it's no Le Samurai uh, or Le Circle Rouge. It's it's not cool. Um, no, and I and I and I've been thinking about that too, since it, I just I I started this really fresh. Like I almost feel like if it's the point that the main guys are supposed to think they're cooler than they are, and that's kind yeah. of the point maybe it is um because i that really bothered me when i was watching it's like these, these guys aren't nearly as cool as i think he wants me to believe they are like no. she's infatuated with nothing <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, these dudes are dorks um yeah. mm-hmm. they are clearly obsessed <laughs> with um with detective movies um and crime movies these yeah these characters are dorks um anna karina um is yeah she's not great in this one um well, I say she's not great. Her character is not great in this film. That's probably a better way to put it. She's kind of um, just a punching bag in a way. Like, yeah, that's I all think, I kind of feel about her. I, I agree. I don't think she's a great character in this film. She's essentially a means to an end, as far as characters go. She's she's dressing. She's there as a means to get to the money. Um, that's all she's kind of meant to be, which is 
you know, I don't know, maybe disappointing considering how good I think she is generally. Um, but yeah, her character's not great. The characters are friggin' dorks. Um, they are definitely not cool. The movie, I suppose, is cool in its uncoolness. Does that make sense? It's a nerdy, dorky movie. That, and that's what kind of makes it cool because the characters are just dorks and it kind of makes you think that maybe you could pull this shit as well. Um, they're kind of relatable in that sense. They're not perfect. Like, you know, they're not like Alain Delon walking around. You could never be yeah. as much. You could do anything in the whole wide world, but you can never be as cool as Alain Delon in The Samurai. It's just impossible. But you could probably be just as you could probably be cooler than these guys if you tried. If you really wanted to be, you could probably be cooler than these guys because they're not very cool. And I think that's what makes it kind of fun and relatable and influential. Um, I don't think the filmmaking itself is like anything to write home about. There's nothing super game changing in this movie. Um, there's like weird little sort of esoteric moments, like when the audio cuts out, and I messaged you, Zach, to warn you. I was like, about halfway through this movie, the audio is going to stop. Don't worry. It's not your TV. Do not adjust your TV set. Um, See, I thought is- you were actually, when I first, because I watched the first one after you had said that, and I thought it was the first film because there's that random silent bits in the first film. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that's weird. Okay. <laughs> so I kind of thought of that too. And then I remembered it once I got to this part here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do not. So, listeners, if you're watching Band of Power for the first time after, after, uh, watching this in the cafe scene there is moments where the audio stops do not adjust your tv sets it is on purpose <laughs> i don't know what the purpose is i don't really know why he did it maybe it's just to accentuate the awkward silence between the characters but i don't know uh, just a bit I mean, of a weird I guess moment I see it as the only thing that's really keeping them together is like the excitement of what's gonna happen and like when that's taken away then you kind of it peels back those layers of there's nothing really there like between any of them yeah that's that's a good way of looking at it um to give you the give you the reason why i chose this one i I essentially chose this as a as a palate cleanser film um i wanted to show because obviously the first two films we talked about are very serious um in terms of you know the stories and how they're filmed so but you know goddard's mainly known for his playfulness um and i didn't want to go the easy route and talk about breathless everybody talks about breathless it's over talked about at this stage so i wanted to choose one that was in the same vein of breathless is like if you like this film then you should watch breathless because they are yeah. very similar huh. um in terms of um the tone and but you told like me that. to avoid alphaville right i don't like alphaville but i think chris likes it uh yeah i think i think Alpha, i think you might like it i don't know it's i, I like it a lot okay yeah I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a big Alphaville dude. Um, but if you like this, the tone of this film, then I would check out Breathless for sure, and even like Poirot Le Fou, uh, which is a bit more arty. It's in color, um, but it has Anna Karina in it again uh, with Jean-Paul Belmondo, um, who's probably sort of the best actor of all the sort of French New Wave film, best best actor, so best sort of male out of all the kind of French New Wave actors. Um, he's probably the best one. Jean Moreau is probably the best overall actor male and female of the French New Wave but um, mm-hmm. Belmondo is probably the best sort of male um, throughout all of them um, so yeah if you like this one definitely check out Breathless for sure um, but yeah Band, Band of Outsiders I don't think it's yeah I just didn't find it as interesting this time around um, it's still super fresh obviously but 
yeah, I didn't find it as interesting this time around as I did when I first watched it um, or when I kind of subsequently watched it in my early 20s. Um, I, I didn't. It's, it's kind of like we watched Hitchhiker. You know, sometimes it's really nice to just have something straightforward. Like we've talked, you yeah. guys talked a bit about the deconstruction of his first two. And this one, it was like, I'm, I'm actually kind of relieved. <laughs> that this is pretty straightforward like yeah this is for a sure war plot i mean yeah i'm sure there's little elements like we kind of talked a little bit about the characters not being as cool as they think they are and stuff like that but that's really minor stuff <laughs> like yeah this is definitely more i feel like a straight satire of of noir and crime heist films mm-hmm. as opposed to being something sort of that has a lot of thematic layers that you can delve upon i think this is just it's yeah, it's just a, it's a crime movie, but all the people just don't happen to be cool like in normal yeah. crime movies. So it's funny, you know, seeing like as Chris said, seeing this next to um, the killing in in this in the they shoot pictures list because um, the killing is so tight and cool and really sort of um, yeah, tight is probably the best way I can put it. It's really tense and taut and has a lot of friction. And, and it has Ronnie of... Dangerfield in it. That already gives it a leg up. <laughs> but it's it's it, it moves. It's it's very um. What's the word I'm trying to think? It's very deliberate in how everything everything happens for a reason at yeah. an exact moment. It's very cold and calculated. Whereas Band of Outsiders is just like the opposite. It is as loosey goosey. They don't like they completely decide to change the day that are even going to do the freaking heist at the I last mean, they, minute. They, for like an hour of the film, they fuck off and do random shit like. it's like that's why i was sitting there thinking i was that's why i started getting paranoid i was like this they're gonna like like it actually would have been funny if they kept doing this random stuff and forgot to do the whole thing i actually would have found that funny but i was Uh, like that's (laughs) i was like because they had not this um zach i i found something that i think may make you like it less (laughs) okay Uh that's what we need uh the one I like. He just, he just the dude just liked the movie, Chris. Don't ruin this. Uh, no, no, no. I just think I just think this is uh, it's funny. You talk about. I don't think it's going to change your opinion on the movie, but it will be a good point of evidence for why you don't like Godard as a person. So, the way that he described this movie, um, uh, was Alice in Wonderland meets Franz Kafka. <laughs> Which okay, I'm, I'm sorry. An idiot. Who's Franz Kafka? Oh, he's a he's a novelist. Uh, what Metamorphosis is Metamorphosis, his big yeah. novel the, about the guy the that turns into a cockroach. Well. Okay, but it. Anyways, I, it, it I I I'm sorry. Like, no, with all respect to the master, this is not Alice in Wonderland meets Franz Kafka. <laughs> like, I don't get the Kafka bit at all. I can kind <laughs> like of get, get the, the Alice yeah, in Wonderland Alice, bit. Yeah. Like Clearly. I get that part. Like she's way in over her head. She thinks this is like, I don't know, magical in a way, in a weird way, but still scared of everything. So yeah, I can get that. I can understand that. I don't know who Kafka is enough to say anything with that though. Yeah, I, I totally don't get the Kafka part. To be honest. No, there's no like you know he would be like the novelist equivalent of a surrealist kind of right. Yeah, he's like, he's like David Cronenberg of novels. Yeah. Yeah. You might you might like him, Zach, for what it's worth. But um, it's, anyways, it's just a I, I don't think that's here. <laughs> so why did you think was... that made me like it less, though? Curiosity. Oh, be because he, you talk about a guy who's so up his ass, 
he he's trying to make the movie into something that it's not you know oh like, yeah yeah <laughs> more important than it really is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay well, like if we if we needed to know that, all you'd have to do is look at the opening credits of the movie and see how he credited himself. Did you guys see that? <laughs> oh yes. shit, I missed it. Thank you. Jean so Luc Cinema Goddard is how he credited. Oh himself. god, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I saw it. I Thankfully, I forgot about it. <laughs> That's how he credits himself. Jean Luc Cinema Goddard. That's um, amazing. So, I don't know what it is. You know what? There's okay. There's something about Goddard movies. Again, this is not meant to convince you, Zach. Right? I'm just. But but hearing hearing your your takes is making me think of like why I like his movies so much. I'm just on that trend or on that thread of thought. There there's something in my like 15, 16, 17 year old spirit that was like I knew that the world was more than what I had been shown. And there was like I was like just if I'm going back to myself at like that age, there was just like a dissatisfaction with sort of like just this standard you know, rhythms of everything that I had like been taught, right? Like the rhythms of like being polite and like the rhythms of etiquette and like, you know, like all these kind of just like the expectations of good grades and then going to school. And like, I was frustrated with this, right? And I felt like it wasn't my own and I wanted to like push against that and like like make my own kind of way. So I colored my hair and joined a punk band. Like I had these very, these very quiet, like not, super crazy forms of rebellion but um there's some when i when i saw godard movies i felt a similar restlessness and like a similar just I, I hate to say punk rock spirit because i don't think that's fitting for him but like this idea of just he was he didn't take the world as it was shown to him but like like he had his own vision of it and his own way of talking and his own way of writing and and like that that's kind of what drew me in right it was like it wasn't the artistic qualities. It was sort of like the way that he thought and 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 was trying new things and experimenting matched with it kind of hit me at the right time. So I think I think that's of all the stuff that I saw then that I that I didn't like and, and have come to like later, um, this is one that has stuck with me for, for a long time, I think because of a lot of that. And okay. I think it's Sorry, Zach, you can continue on that. No, I, the only thing I was going to say is kind of the common thread I noticed between you and Chris or you guys both saw these very young. And I'm wondering how much difference I guess that makes. Like, I, mm -hmm. I don't know why it would, because I, I don't I feel like you'd have less appreciation for this at a young age than older. So I find that interesting. I, I, I don't know why. But exactly. was what I was going to. This is the trail I was going to follow as well. So. Do you guys ever have that thing that people your age loved growing up and they have such a nostalgia for it now, but you don't have that nostalgia because you never were that into it as a kid? Yeah. So oh, yeah. like my version of that would be like Harry Potter. You know, I watched the movies, but I wasn't really a big fan. I didn't read the books or anything like that. But like people my age, I know Zach, you're pretty much the same age as me. People our age, you know, love you know, if they watched Harry Potter when they were young, they still are freaking obsessed with Harry Potter. So many of my friends are gonna, are taking time off work next week just to play the freaking Harry Potter game that's coming out on consoles. Like they're booking, they're using their paid time away to play a video game of Harry Potter. And I think they're absolutely <laughs> crazy idiots. I mean, I, I bought the game, but I ain't taking time off work. My PTO is precious. <laughs> yes, yeah, so well, that's the thing. Um, but that, that's one thing that I have. Like, I don't get it. I'll, I'll play the game, no problem. 
but yeah. like I'm not like any way obsessed with it like a lot of people in in our generation would be and like that goes the same like but I would have that obsession with Star Wars that a lot of other people who didn't. And that's my with. version. I'm not a huge Star Wars dude. Exactly. So yeah. we, there's there's things like that that happen where when you're young, you build up that nostalgia for it so that as an adult, you continue to love it. And I think this is not necessarily a thing of nostalgia for Godard, but I can say this with certainty for me, but like he was the first sort of foreign filmmaker, yeah. art house filmmaker that I watched when I first got into movies as a teenager, you know, I've told you this story before that the most basic of all filmmakers changed my life, Christopher Nolan. Uh, when I watched Inception, that blew my mind. And that's what made me get interested in exploring movies. And I watched a lot of the sort of homegrown filmmakers and Godard was the first one that wasn't of American or English, Canadian, whatever, wasn't English speaking that I started watching. And because his films are so different, that's what really stuck with me. And it goes back to what I said to you earlier, Zach. Maybe this doesn't seem as fresh to you because, not because you're older, but because you have such a wide palette already of cinema. You know, what you're seeing now isn't necessarily new because you've seen a Truffaut film. You've seen, um, what was the other, uh, Elevator to the Gallows, which all do very similar things. Louis so Mal, Truffaut. Louis Mal, yeah, Truffaut. I, I don't, yeah, um, I, even like Agne Varda, you know, we watch mm-hmm. Black Panthers. I know it technically maybe is not really the same as it's a documentary, but, and th- the point I'm making is that I don't think age necessarily is what comes into it because I think if you were, if you are getting into being a cinephile now and you've only seen American movies, I think it would have the same effect on you. I just think that you'll always hold close to kind of first sort of filmmakers that took you out of your comfort zone and what seemed really fresh will sort of have that same nostalgia will be the equivalent of that kind of nostalgia you'd have for something you grew up with as a kid if that makes sense yeah, yeah. it's the same feeling it's not necessarily the same thing but it's the same feeling so the reason why i kind of have that affinity with goddard is because he'll always be fresh in my brain because that's how i first experienced his movies were just completely blew my mind because i'd never seen anything anybody make a film like he had made them before um, so that's why I've all, I'll always kind of have that affinity. Whereas if I watch, you know, any other, pretty much any other French New Wave filmmaker after that that I've seen, I'm always comparing them to Godard. I'm always like when I watch, you know, Truffaut films or Louis Malle films or Varda films or Jacques Demy or Alain René or whoever the fuck it is, I'm always like, okay, but comparing this to Godard, is it as good? Maybe he's like the benchmark mm-hmm. for that sort of type of film am i making sense here no yeah yeah i i i thought because i just found it interesting because like usually when i think of nostalgic filmmakers and these isn't an insult to any of these but like when people first start getting the film you know they they like their david venture they like their tarantino and it a lot of it's because they borrowed a whole lot to make what they are which that's part of filmmaking but i can understand someone that feels like something you do a lot when you're younger where I guess Godard doesn't feel that way. Like, I feel like he's just, he's put on this pedestal maybe to a point where it's like, it, it's more confusing. Cause it's like, why don't I feel the same affinity? And it's like, you wouldn't think of him as more of a nostalgia type thing, I guess, but what you're saying makes sense. It's just interesting with him in particular. Yeah. I think it's, Again, just to kind of reiterate, I think it's just because he is a lot of people's entryway, because he's so influential, 
mm. becomes a lot of people's entry into sort of foreign art house movies. Mm. He's like one of the first guys you'll go to um, if you're if you're looking to get into that. So that's probably why he ends up, you know, with a lot of people loving his stuff because he ends up being the entryway to a lot of people in the same way that Fincher, Nolan, and now these days people like Villeneuve, um, you know, would be entryways into sort of more serious uh, you know, Hollywood cinema, um, a lot of people would have, you know, a lot of people's first foreign film, apart from maybe these days, would be like Parasite, for example. Yeah. Um, like something like Bon Joon Hoon is probably the kind of modern equivalent of that. A lot of people's first foreign film these days is going to be Parasite or other you know, memories of murder, you know, something maybe from Korea, you know, Park, Park Won Chuk as well, you know, something like that might be a lot of people's far, first foreign films now. Whereas in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and just because of where my research took me when I was getting into film, Godard was my first and he was a lot of people's first entryway into foreign films. So it's not the same as nostalgia, but it's the same. It does the same thing in your brain that nostalgia does, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't know if that made sense. <laughs> no, it did. It did. It definitely made sense. It's given me a lot to think on. It's just, uh, it, it, it was just kind of interesting to me just because I noticed that both of you watched him at a young age. And I was like, that's not the one I, I mean, when I was 16 or 17, I probably would have never even watched this. Like, that's like, this doesn't interest me. I think it, it, it can be take different forms, right? You know, there's like, when you were, when you were in high school, was there like a, a novel or a poem or or, or anything that, you read just, you know, I think that's an age where you get curious, right? You're you're like, I don't know, I think for a lot of folks, it, it's like that age where like late teens, high school, college, especially, you you kind of like, you start as you're, as you're creating your own identity, you, you, you latch onto those things that feel like you, right? And so when, for whatever reason, and maybe if I need to sit on a couch, you know, and talk about this, I'm happy to, Godard, felt like I, rec- I I recognized something in him that like spoke to me, right? Just like I went back and I reread um, Catcher in the Rye as an adult Ugh. and like, what an annoying piece of shit kid, right? Awful. But like reading that as a teenager, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, <clears throat> you know. I have so the I same issue with Jack, Car- with Jack Kerouac books. Oh, you know what? I have, I've been scared to go back and read him for that reason. He's such a piece of shit. <laughs> terrible human being I, i've been scared to go back and read him for that same reason god he's awful um, oh that's funny but i had this i had nearly this sort of identical conversation in the discord a couple of days ago but about music and about albums we were talking about like our favorite albums and someone mentioned that oh is it bad that my favorite album hasn't changed in 16 years and i was like well no like you know this is obviously something that imprints upon you at a really sort of formative time in your life yeah like i will always call fallout boys from under uh, fallout boys take this to your grave as one of my favorite albums great album. because i heard I... it when i was like 15 you know fucking great album and to this day it's one of my favorite albums because i listened to it during a really formative time in my life and it will always be there i'll always re-listen to it i'll always enjoy it and you know, anything new can come out for the next 50 years and it probably will never change the fact that I will always go back and re-listen to that album because yeah. I listened to it at a time that was very formative. And, you know, films do the same thing, books do the same thing. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Your opinions change. Like, again, like I'll use, you know, Band of Outsiders. You know, I first watched that when I was maybe 18. 
the last time I watched it, I was probably 22 or 23 and I really liked it. I'm watching it again now at 28 and I don't like it as much. So, you know, these, these things kind of change. They're, they're not, all, there's not always perfect. And also at the same time, you'll go back and revisit something. Like when I talk about Vertigo, I first watched that when I was 18 and then I revisited it when I was 23 or 24. And I had as polar opposite an opinion on it as, as humanly possible. I went from thinking, well, why do people like this movie to this is the greatest movie ever made. I was crazy to not like this movie. So yeah, it's not everything is as black and white as you watch it when you're 15 or 16, you're going to automatically love it forever. Your opinion can change. Probably why I haven't watched Inception in about 10 years, uh, because I'm terrified um, Mm -hmm. to watch it. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, again, I don't want to keep dragging this out, beating a dead horse, but um it's absolutely fine that you don't feel the same way for Goddard than me and Chris do because we just happen to watch it at different times in our lives and what you're doing now where you've had a much wider film palette than me and Chris would have had as teenagers than than you do now so you know I, I do want to put this on a very positive note to end it I am so glad that no one can say anything to me now when I complain about Goddard <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. That was always my complaint is that you 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 were blindly insulting him. At least when you insult him now, I'm like, okay, that's fair enough. He's seen three of his movies that are very different to one another. I, I, I can give him the benefit of the doubt. He's a pretty good understanding of what's, what he's about. Um, okay, so should we end by me sharing what we're going to be watching next? Yes, yes, please put us out of our misery. Okay. I, I I was I was joking with you all a second ago um, in between segments about how I just picked the films, but I have been thinking about it. My initial thought was going to be to do two Kenji Fukasaku films that I haven't seen um, because I've been on a kick of his recently, and there's one of his films uh, is called Graveyard of Honor, which was made in 1975. So at first I was going to have us watch that. And then another one of his called Fall Guy. Uh, these are two of his more highly rated movies. And if you liked, you know, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, or if you liked Battle Royale recently, or, you know, what? well, recently, but within the last 20 years. 23 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, you know, then be these are films that are also highly rated from him. But then I had an idea. I want to take it a slightly different direction. Instead of making it director focused, um, I, I think it would be fun to talk about uh, Graveyard of Honor from 1975 and then the Takashi Miike remake in 2002. So oh, we're going watch... back to a Miike. Here we go. Yeah. So we're watching it's two my... films. Two, one film twice. We're watching the, yeah, we're watching the same film twice from, from essentially two directors that ha- are, are both known for pushing Japanese cinema in more eccentric and crazy, violent, hyper-violent ways. Um, what Fukusaka was doing in the 70s was shocking. And what Mike was doing in the early 2000s was equally shocking. The culture had just changed. So this movie gives um, a lot to kind of play with for them. And uh, they're both on the Arrow player. So should be relatively easy to watch for you all. Um, I just want to know Mike's remake is 40 minutes longer. Like that surprises me. I figured his would have been the shorter of the two. 
Uh, well, that's true. I didn't know that. Um, the only thing so I can say is, yeah, the only thing I could say is that, you know, Fukasaku was just pumping movies out. Like, like we talk about the eight movies he made within the, the, the five original battles and then the, the new battles. So he really was, was the old school Mike, because that's pretty much all he does too is pump out a movie <laughs> every month. Exactly. The only difference <laughs> is that Fukusaku is doing it all for a studio. So he had like tight restrictions, right? Whereas Mike is doing it like I have no idea how he gets his money. We probably don't ever want to know. But also, <laughs> I'll, I'll be genius. curious to compare these. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to do, instead of a director focus, we're just going to talk about one movie for an hour and a half next week or next time we talk. Sounds fun. They're both on the Arrow player in Ireland as well, luckily. So that's perfect. Oh, good, 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 good. Okay. Well, thanks. Y'all. What a fun, what a fun discussion.